This is The Premise, and I'm your host, Jennifer. Chad Thompson. De- no, Chad I, Thompson's the no, host. I'm the host. <laughs> I'm Jennifer Thompson. And I'm Chad Thompson, the host. <laughs> Today on The Premise, we have the pleasure of speaking with Dr. Gloria Chance, an holistic and peak performance psychologist whose specialty lies in creative and expressive arts, as well as organizational systems. She is the founder of the Musai Group, a creative experience company whose work focuses on shifting minds in organizations, groups, and individuals. Dr. Gloria is also a co-host of The Blend, a web TV talk show focusing on women's health, She is an educator and the co-author of The Female Factor, a confidence guide for women. Dr. Gloria, welcome to The Premise. Hi, Jennifer. Thank you so much for having me today. Oh my gosh, we're so excited to have you here. I've been looking forward to this interview. I know we've had it scheduled for a little while, but I'm just so excited to kind of dive into this idea of imagination and creativity. And I mean, Dr. Gloria, you have such an impressive background in corporate America. I mean, a former CIO and business executive in healthcare, banking, technology, and energy. I want to talk to you about, you know, what was the catalyst for shifting your focus, going back to school to get your PhD in psychology, and really focusing on creative arts and imagination? You know, Jennifer, I often speak about being this brown little girl running the streets of Brooklyn back in the 70s. And (laughs) part of the way that I survived was by being very creative and by using my imagination. Mm. And so ironically, that translated, I was the first person in my family graduated to graduate from college. And that translated for me into um, a college degree. While it wasn't focused on creativity, um, I was more of a, the college degree was in business and create and um, sorry, not creativity, business and computers. Mm. Back in the time when computers were new in terms of the computers as we know them today, and right. uh, women and minorities were not a part of that movement. And so I became involved in that and found that there was a lot of creativity in computers, especially trying to figure out how they worked at the time, because I, I was in the phase of introducing desktops on the computers mm-hmm. right after the mainframe age. So that tells you how old I am. <laughs> so, um, it was, everything was new. Everything was exciting. And my role was to help people understand it and get there. And so that was the beginning of my transition into the business world using creativity. And as I rose up to become a chief information officer across multiple industries, what I found out was emerging technology became a thing for me. And in that space, there's nothing but creativity. Most startups are always looking for the next newest technology. So I became involved in in that space. And and that led me to wanting to understand, well, how does creativity work in our brains and in our minds? Because I wanted to replicate it over and over and over, not just for myself, but for individuals and organizations. Yeah, absolutely. 
You know, I never thought about that before, the idea of how it really is a creative area, even though you're in healthcare or banking or technology, there still has to be the creatives behind the idea of launching it to begin with. Well, you know, my concept, though, in my work is that everyone, we all have the capacity to be creative. It's one of the gifts that we have, the unique gifts that we have as individuals. However, it, it gets beaten out of us around at around two years old when we're being asked to conform. You know, when mm. people are teaching us, well, this is how you're supposed to walk and how you're supposed to sit and you're supposed to say please. And all of those things, while they're important in the function of growing up and being, you know, sort of existing in society, it actually impacts us in a very negative way because it kind of stamps out our ability and our, um, it doesn't really give us permission to mm. be outside of a box. Yeah. Yeah. In your work, you talk a lot about deeply embedded patterns. That's kind of what you're speaking to right now. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Speak more on that. Yeah. And so what happens is, okay, so we get our creativity and imagination kind of stomped out and we say, this is the way that we do things. Mm -hmm. And so in general, um, what's fascinating about some of the work that I do or the research that, that sort of drives my work is that um, this fact, which I think is really important, In a day, we have approximately 60,000 thoughts. And of those 60,000 thoughts, 98% of those thoughts are um, we have the day before. So they're the same thoughts every day, 98%. And then 8% of those thoughts are negative. Hmm. And so that starts to create the pattern. And the pattern is that we become robotic because we think the same things. We don't ever change what we think. And we don't even realize that that's what we're doing. And then we're negative. And mm-hmm. so that, you know, negativity doesn't really bring us anything, right? Other than keeping us with the same thoughts that we have. And so that right. creates a pattern of roboticism as well as just sort of not thinking. And so in creative thinking, most people who think creatively only use up to 10% of their creative minds. And mm-hmm. so my goal is to get people to, A, expand their creative thinking so that they, they, they think more unique thoughts or new ideas daily. So you have to push yourself. You have to push yourself to not do the same. It's like a muscle. Well, exactly. It's a muscle for sure. Huh. There's this line about the power of imagination on your website, the com, that it really resonated with me. You know, this idea, what is essential to creativity is the invisible inside us. Mm -hmm. I love that. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and the invisible can be a number of things, but what it really is, is all of us are seeking to find meaning in our lives, right? Mm -hmm. No matter who we are, even if we have a disability or whatever, people want to feel that there, or we all have something inside of us that we could call passion, or it could be our soul's calling. And that carries and drives us towards what our life purpose is supposed to be. And that that's what's invisible to us, because many psychologists and in and, and, and different cultures and religion believe that when we're born, we're born for a purpose and we're born knowing what that purpose is. But back to my earlier point, what starts to happen to us when we're two, you know, we get we're, we're worried about or we're told to conform. And so suddenly what we knew when we were born gets further and further away from us. Right. It gets Mm -hmm. buried down inside of us. So that's what becomes invisible is who we are and who we're supposed to be. 
And Mm -hmm. so getting back to our creativity allows us to express and to pull in the thing that we're supposed to be. And so the invisible becomes visible. You know, part of me thinks that, you know, maybe it's just as simple as giving ourselves permission to be creative. But I wonder if it's deeper than that. Like, like we have gone so far away from it. Like, how do we get back there? Yeah, I think permission is one of the things, but the challenge with permission is that all of our systems, our work systems, our life systems are built to make us conform. Mm -hmm. So therefore creativity becomes something that either you have to be conceived as being special, like you're an artist or a celebrity. Right. So then it's like, okay, well, they're creative, but I'm not. And so we have, we built this system or this world that says that creativity is something different and special outside of us or that belongs to someone else. Or we have to do uh, sort of this work that we don't love in order to maybe get a chance to be creative. So we don't bring creativity to the table as a part of our whole self. And so when I talk about being a holistic psychologist, I'm really interested in helping people understand their whole selves, because when you can do that, then you can be creative. Mm-hmm. Do, do you think that businesses, you know, because you work a lot with the corporate environment, do you think that these corporations are embracing the idea of incorporating more art and creative thinking into the workplace? Oh, is, is there a shift happening? Yeah, there definitely is a shift. I mean, you can see, like, um, I just uh, did an interview on work-life in- or work-life integration, which is different from work-life balance. And what work-life integration is in corporate America is it's a, a holistic approach that allows individuals to bring what their passions are, to marry their passions with their work. And so they can bring their whole self to uh, the workplace. Um, Things like introducing stress management and mindfulness techniques, Mm -hmm. um, you know, Mm -hmm. people being trained in uh, resiliency and and, um, empathy. Those are all uh, more of the soft skills that are skills that in the research and in my work are drivers of creativity. And so if you look at there's, there are IBM studies and other big studies that, that say that creativity is, is, has become one of the top five uh, important leadership skills and skills that organizations will need to thrive. Awesome. Yeah. That's, that's kind of exciting, isn't it? It really is. I mean, I've done work with executives around using drumming to help them uh, get sort of their rhythm um, integrating sort of uh, leadership development processes along with drumming. Uh, you know, I use comedy um, um, and different uh, creative modalities as well as other traditional ones to help people build strategies. Because what happens is our, the way that our creative mind works is that if, if we're told to be creative or we know, then we're going to kind of, you know, sort of shut down. But Mm -hmm. if you are trying to work through a problem and you introduce something like music or drumming or even something physical like dancing, um, what happens is your mind starts to relax and it it, it forgets what you're there to do. 
And so it makes it easier for you to engage in an activity with a more open mind when you you have something like an activity, um, you know, sort of moving your body and your mind together. So you get a better outcome, you're more relaxed, and it's actually more fun. And that's yeah. when we can start to have creativity or the mind to open and shift in a way that we need to bring in something new. Yeah. You know, I'm a writer and I take a lot of writing classes. And sometimes they'll bring someone into the room who does this similar to what you're talking about. Like one time we were blindfolded. We had to touch something or smell something or taste something and write about that experience. And I always have this reaction initially where I'm very negative to it. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yes. I don't want to do that. And yet I force myself. I say, oh, I'm, I'm going to do it, but I'm not happy about it. And it's so it must be something ingrained in me, one of those patterns you're talking about from my childhood, because at the end of it, I'm always so happy I did it. And my mind is opened to other possibilities. And I'm always like, kind of shocked at what happens, like what I find is available in there, you know? And that's so, so fascinating what you just said, because you're right. Most people, not all, but most people initially are like, oh my God, no, they're going to make me Yeah, this is embarrassing. <laughs> I'm not going to dance. And yeah. it is back to your earlier point about permission. You, mm. you have to give yourself permission to be open to it is mm -hmm. the first step. Yeah. And I think that also the, the repetition of it. So again, if we have 60,000 thoughts and 98% of them are the same, you can see why your mind is fighting that new thing, right? Totally. Because yeah. it's like, hey, wait a minute, I haven't been thinking about this. And so the, the key is to what I like to do is have people embed these things into their culture, because you're right. If I wait and do this once a month, every month, I'm going to be challenged with this same thinking and people being closed to something new and open. I just had this lovely idea that once a month, I should force myself to go out and do something that makes me uncomfortable. Or it's like outside of the purview of what I would normally do. What about once a week? Start. Oh my gosh. Now see, that's That's like, entirely too much. That's <laughs> madness. <laughs> How am I going to find the time for that, right? Crap's like, I'm yeah. going on this. No way. <laughs> <laughs> it, it does remind me of uh, the producer Brian Eno in his studio would often have like a, a deck of cards. And on this deck of cards were just like things that he would use to get the musicians inspired so he'd be in in a studio with david bowie and he'd say all right this isn't working grab something out of the deck and it'd be read something like uh play an instrument you don't normally play or mm -hmm. you know everyone switch instruments or just like all these right. different things and it would take everyone out of the comfort zone and then you end up with something amazing with something that's potentially magical right oh yeah. absolutely and this whole concept out of comfort zone is really kind of an oxymoron because actually when you are in your creative flow you are in the zone you are in the place where you're supposed to be but it's mm -hmm. uncomfortable because we haven't been allowed to be there but mm -hmm. what you're experiencing is your true self i mean one of um I think, believe it's Anderson and Adam says that transitioning to one's creative self is the major transition in adult life. And wow. so it is something that we are seeking, that we are desiring, that we're wanting that level of freedom. But because we haven't been allowed to do it, it feels like it's out of our comfort zone. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting, like the correlation between and, and you talk about this too. You have a, a workshop called Psychologist for 
artists about shifting mindsets from stress mm -hmm. and creative blocks to expanded creative capacity. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's the, the, you know, correlating stress and creativity and how maybe one can offset the other is very intriguing to me. Well, you know, there is a fallacy in the, the in sort of in the artist world that you, you know, creativity requires stress, right? You look at you know, people mm -hmm. like Miles Davis and other some people who have struggled uh, either with mental illness or any kind of substance abuse or whatever that, you know, that, well, that I need to do that because that expands my creativity. Mm -hmm. Actually, those are really two separate things. Um, but because what creativity does need usually a constraint. So mm -hmm. a lot of times you are at your most creative when you're under the gun, right? Because creativity really is a problem-solving tool is what it is. Um, usually when you're being creative, you're either trying to create something for a purpose or a goal or to solve a problem. And so generally creativity, the reason I stress stress reduction in creativity is because if you can remove the stress, then you can get to the happy the positive side of you, which is where creativity really resides. Mm. And so part of, again, that helping people not be so negative, uh, positivity um, and creativity not only creates individual creativity, but it creates what we call team contagion. So if you're working with a team and you have someone who's very positive and emotionally available, then that actually becomes contagious for others. And it increases collaboration and collaboration, you know, obviously increases ideas and creativity. Yeah. See, those people just repel me. Really? <laughs> <laughs> just overshares and always. <laughs> always positive. Always positive. Trying to hug you. Well, no, actually going back to, you know, what you were saying about there's this fallacy that you have to be in a dark place to be creative. Maybe what happens is we're no longer complacent. You know, if we're in a state where we're depressed or things are bad, maybe we're more likely to tap into that creative side because we're otherwise hopeless. We have to in order to survive. Well, actually, when you're depressed, depression, I mean, the true sense of depression is more where you are lethargic. Uh, you don't mm -hmm. actually you don't have any initiative to get mm -hmm. anything done. And so that's why I'm saying it's a fallacy because, you know, depression is a total opposite of that. You, you may, I mean, there are times that you can, again, if you, depending on why you're depressed, it can end up being a creative event. But for the most part, depression and creativity aren't two things that work together because of the, um, just what happens in the, in the brain with depression. Well, maybe it's more hardship. Yeah. I, no, hardship is it. Because I think about my mom, you know, we grew up very poor. And mm -hmm. so because of that hardship, my mom, who I, I didn't graduate from high school, would we walked around and do window shopping and we'd say, oh, mom, I like that. But I, I like that dress. But can you like shift this pocket or do whatever? And she'd go back home without a pattern, create that outfit with the shift. Wow. And wow. she did that for four girls for our, our entire school year, the, all our, of our years up through high school. And so that's an example. That's a perfect example of the hardship and how creativity functions as. So she wasn't depressed about it. She used the hardship to um, sort of, you know, push the creativity through. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, and in cultures where there is an oppression, uh, people find more creative ways to speak their mind. 
and exactly. to create you know, their when art. I, when I did research on, um, I did a, a film short on um, growing up in the inner city and going to the School of Performing Arts, and 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 uh, I did it with my friend Vanessa Williams, who is an actress, and. We both and I talked about how I use my creativity to go into business, and she used hers in the traditional kind of entertainment route. And what I found in that, in in doing that research, is that to your point, that when you are disadvantaged, particularly minority children, that they mm-hmm. are the most creative overall children because of that disadvantage, right. um, and and having to always either be creative to get their minds off the, off of something really horrible or, you know, to be imaginative because, uh, you know, they didn't have money to go on vacation. So they had to create a vacation experience, those kind of things. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I grew up incredibly poor, uh, poverty stricken, but we were very rural up in Northern Idaho in Eastern mm-hmm. Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we didn't, you know, we didn't have toys. We didn't have the things, you know, even television, electricity for a good portion of the time. And, but we weren't bored. We were never bored. And nowadays you see kids who have everything available to them and they're constantly bored. And I just think that there's, there's a correlation between having too much and not using that creative muscle. But think about it. You're right. If everything's given to you and all you have to do is sit down and move your fingers, mm-hmm. then you're not really exercising a whole bunch of muscles, especially not the mind. Yeah. And I, I think that we are definitely seeing in the research and psychology that the brains of people who were born in the past um, you know, 10, 15 years have, ch- they've changed the, 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 the makeup really? of the brain has shifted because of the, fa- of the very fact that you're talking about with, you know, the, the children who are born only knowing tech, you know, in this technology age, um, they don't even have skills that we have, like knowing how to write in cursive, um, you know, knowing how to write a, an actual letter. Right. I mean, th- these are very serious issues, way beyond creativity, around how technology has shifted the brain and shifted the way that we relate to each other, et cetera. So that's a whole nother podcast. That totally is. Yeah. <laughs> well, even just remembering numbers, you know, when I was a kid, we remembered all the phone numbers we needed to call. Well, for sure. I mean, right? I barely know my phone number. So <laughs> exactly. I know exactly what you mean. I'd like to talk about your workshop, A Walk in My Shoes. Mm-hmm. Uh, a Walk in My Shoes deals with the idea of shifting marginalization to hope and reimagining race and gender oppression. And, you know, we're at a point in our culture where this is so needed. And I wonder, you know, how this workshop, how it's being received, and ultimately where you came up with it, where did it come from? So where I'll start with where did it come from? And I'm thinking back and I don't really know, you know, I create, you know, so I've always been, so I created the first mobile application um, for banking. So I put the banking on the phone and I got the most powerful woman in banking award uh, Mm. for that. And I created through like this really crazy uh, word perfect processor way back in the day the first electronic medical record, which is important in healthcare. It was mm-hmm. so big that they did a, the company I was with, the healthcare system did a spinoff company um, mm-hmm. to go out and do this electronic medical record. So I'm saying all of that to say that I create, 
I, yeah. I understand systems and I come up with something that's needed. So I honestly can't even think back to when I developed that. But what's even more fascinating to me about the workshop is that I integrated a bunch of different creative techniques in the process. So we're talking about a really deep, deep thing around diversity and oppression. I mean, this mm-hmm. you're creating the timeline that goes all the way back to 1776, all the way up to today and capturing those events. Um, talk to you know. talk to people about the process of what, what it looks like to take that workshop, A Walk in My Shoes, and how the digital piece comes into it. Well, right. And so in creating the digital piece where, you know, in 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 our in our minds, we actually think in images, right? And so mm-hmm. we really don't think in words or stories or in images. And so my idea is around the image and the work that I do with the Getty Museum and art is like you take it. What image attracts you and what in your psyche is calling to that image? What What is that image trying to say to you that you need to hear that is trying to come forward inside of you? So I use that that approach. And this digital timeline houses throughout, you know, I, I don't know, that's over 200, 250 years or whatever of information around videos, letters, newspaper articles or whatever about the topic. And so you choose an image. Um, that's that's speaking to you on this digital timeline. And when you click on it, you get to spend time about the historical perspective of whatever that event was. So if it was about lynching, let's say, then you as the reader would actually get educated and have read stories about that event. And then you're asked to, after you read the story, which is really key in psychology, is what in that story in, evoked emotion in you, strong emotion. What was a part of that story? And from there, once we get the answer to that emotion, then we dig even deeper. We get you to then step back and write about, as if you're in that person's shoes, to write about that experience that that person might have been going through at the time from your perspective, but with that emotion. And from there, you get to act it out, write a poem, sing about it, um, or whatever. And you do it actually in the audience with your, of your peers. And then the final piece is to say, because this is what always happens in psychology and happens in creativity, is you were drawn to that and you were emotional about that because there was something inside of you that needed to be revealed. Mm-hmm. And so then we bring it back to you. So you learn a lot about another culture, about um, the oppression, but more than that, you learn about yourself. And that's what I'm always seeking to have people do and to do that through creative modalities. It's so cool too. You know, and I have to tell our listeners, I did take this workshop about a year ago, I think, and it was an incredible experience. And you did, I think there was maybe 10 of us and you transported us back in time, this guided experience. And I was personally called to Rosa Parks. And I remember, I remember. this, it was incredible. I had this, this shift in feeling, you know, where I was writing from the perspective of Rosa Parks. And at first, you know, speaking of being uncomfortable and doing something that makes me uncomfortable, I felt really uncomfortable, almost like, you know, who am I to presume that I could feel her feelings or experience her reality? But as we continued, this shift in me was just deeply rooted in this emotion. And I felt this wave of feelings that really surprised me. It was incredible. And I'll never forget it. And I appreciate it. And I thank you for those moments. I still tell people about it. Yeah, it was really, it was pretty awesome. I would recommend anyone who has the opportunity to take the workshop. It's called A Walk in My Shoes. 
with Thank Dr. You, Gloria Chancellor. Thank you so much. Yeah. You know, the response has been amazing when I've done it internationally at a conference with you know a larger crowd. It has been um, we needed more time to um, decompress because it can be very emotional. Yeah, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, people really like go deep in in this experience. Well, and you walk out of it feeling like you know not only the people in the room, but the people who they, you know, like for me, I tried to walk in the shoes of Rosa Parks. And I I feel like I walked away knowing all of these historical figures on a pretty emotional level, because when we take our own emotions and our own experiences and walk in the shoes of that historical figure, something happens. No, it does. And I never even thought about it from the standpoint of it's almost like a history lesson because I even I learn a lot also. I'm like, oh, I didn't realize that that Japanese (laughs) did that or we did that to them or whatever. You know, it is pretty fascinating. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, when I left, I felt like I wanted us to all have a Facebook group and stay friends forever. Like, you know, I didn't want to yeah, lose I that connection. A bad business model. I have definitely fallen <laughs> asleep on that one. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's still time. There's still time. How often do these workshops take place? How would people You know, find they really one? are by request. I mean, okay. I do what I love to do with salons, which are in people's private homes or private facilities where it's manageable. You mix it with dinner wine if you want. Those are really the best because it's such a, a personal. It is. Um, yeah. 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 So I love to do those. So, um, you know, obviously at, um, at your festival, um, I've, um, I'll be doing it, um, this year, but usually by request. And I have a number of other workshops that I do similarly that again, bring in the creative aspects, uh, depending on the goal of the per- the people I'm working with, um, you know, we, 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 I strive to make sure that I reach those goals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, and you have a lot of really cool workshops that you offer. And I know you also do retreats. Yes. Talk to us yeah. about, I want to talk about the active creative thinking too, because that's, I know that's one of the specialties of the Musai group. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, what, a, did you say active? Active creative thinking, this idea of creating new patterns and and employing, you know, active creative thinking. Yeah. And so one of the, you know, the work that I do around mythology, um, so mythology, personal mythology is about, um, again, you understanding. So we all have stories that we tell ourselves based on the trauma that we've had. And we all have trauma, whether it is when we were young and someone did something as simple as steal our bike. Or it could be trauma of sexual abuse, you know, that extreme rape. We all have it. And so when we're, um, when we're young, in order to overcome that trauma, we create a story in our minds. And the story around the bike might be, well, you know what? No one, I'm three years old. My bike is missing. My parents didn't really say anything about it, but I just know it's gone. So the story would be, could be something like, you know, my bicycle was stolen and no one cares. So therefore, the story of life of my life is that, you know what, I have to do everything on my own because I will care about me and no one else will. Right. Because you got the impression that, you know, because there wasn't care given about the bike, nobody cares about you. So you basically go on to build your life based on that story. And that's what Mm -hmm. creates patterns. And the reason the patterns are there is because usually you were so young and you didn't realize that that story, that trauma was embedded at a cellular level into your unconscious. 
And usually that story, that kind of sense of that pattern is passed down from your ancestors. So that sort of concept of non-communication about issues or, you know, not seeing, being empathetic enough when someone goes through something, those are patterns that you inherit that actually drive your life. And until you go through this process that I have around personal mythology, you don't really understand the patterns. So you get stuck Mm -hmm. in this place. And that's why I talk about peak performance and next level, because until you break through that pattern, like we all have it, right? Some people have a pattern like I always get into, let's say, dead end relationships or I always get into, you know, a work situation where um, I, I never get promoted. Um, all of those things are actually not just things that happen to you. They're your patterns that they're, they're you setting up your patterns. So personal mythology, that whole approach that I use helps you understand what your story was, your first story was, and you break through the patterns um, so that you can get to the next level um, uh, because you broke through your patterns. I think people are afraid to break patterns. It's a lot of hard work. It is not for the faint of mind, that's for sure. Right, right. Which is, you know, I guess that's just life in a nutshell. But if only we could just break through these patterns and, you know, tap into our creative imagination and life would be so much better, right? Yeah, well, it would be because, you know, again, what creativity is simply, it is, it's not acting, singing, dancing. It's not really any of that. It's not, it is, it's that. And it's ideas, but it's much more. And what it really is, is being your authentic whole self. Because when you are your authentic whole self, you become more creative because you, you know, you're, you're open and you're looking and you can solve problems easier because now you have all of these possibilities in front of you versus, oh, I only do it this way. Because Einstein says that, and I believe this is that you cannot solve problems with the same thinking that created those problems. So if you think the same way every day and you created that problem and now you're going to think the same way today trying to solve the problem, well, you're going to get this this sort of mess, right, of just circular thing of, well, I tried to solve the problem, but it didn't work. I tried because you're doing the same thing over Mm -hmm. and over. So creativity gives you the freedom to be able to live a more expanded life, a more abundant life. Because you are in the flow of expanded thinking, which gives you expanded opportunities and possibilities. Right. God, that's huge, right? Mm-hmm. If you had one piece of advice that you could give our listeners, something that they could do to really expand in the way that you're talking, what would it be? So I tell people, just start out simply. And I'm really serious, Chad, that if you could- <laughs> Seriously, like one time a day, do something different. And it can be as small as take take a shower in the dark. If you use the light, like I don't use light when I take a shower, so I should turn the light on. Just Mm. doing something different because it shifts your brain. Your brain actually realizes, oh, this person's doing doing something different. Like take a different route to work instead of just driving on automatic pilot. Right. Like do the opposite of what you normally do. And you might be surprised, you know, like if you always say no to something, say yes, you might, you know, get an opportunity that you didn't think of really small things. So that's my advice is do some, do the opposite of what you would normally do and start there and see what happens. And once you see some of the, 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 sometimes it feels like a miracle 
uh, happens when you, you choose something different. But through either those miracles or different experiences, you'll start to say, hey, I kind of like thinking out of the box or doing something that I wouldn't normally do and make it right. small so that it's safe. And then as you start to get your, you know, your wings, then you might step out and really get brave and do something um, even more, more big. Yeah. Yeah. Now that's great advice. Um, you know, I take a shower in the dark too. I thought I was the only one. I'm not the only one. <laughs> that's really funny. You know, the idea of, we were talking about the festival and, and Dr. Gloria is going to be teaching the, um, walk in my shoes workshop at the San Diego Writers Festival. And it's an incredible opportunity for people. I just want to remind people that it is free. And the whole impetus for the festival is this idea of storytelling and a, a way of creating community and empathy for one another. And you mentioned empathy just a little bit ago, this idea of, you know, tapping into something different and nurturing empathy and, you know, love for, I think it's not just for others, it's for ourselves, it sounds Oh, like. for sure. You know, we, we, we can't get enough love nowadays. And again, I hate to keep harping on this, but if 60, if up to 60,000 thoughts a day and, and 80% of those are negative, mm -hmm. then we have a ways, we have work to do. We do. And, and I, I mean, if you really think about it, you know, it holds true because we tend to go towards the negative in general. We tend to be judgmental. And when we're judging other people, we're really judging ourselves. So we're not even kind to ourselves. Forget about other people. We're, you know, we're the worst judges of ourselves and we have the worst. If you really, if you could get a, tra a transcript of what's going on in your mind and what you're thinking, you will find that it's very negative about yourself and about other people. Hmm. So I think that, you know, again, shifting and training ourselves away from and just being mindful, you know, the whole movement around mindfulness is so critical because mindfulness makes us, we're supposed to stop and pay attention to what we're thinking. Mm -hmm. And if we can mm -hmm. pause and do that, and then when it's negative, shift it, then we start to move towards being more empathetic. Mm -hmm. But, you know, so, the thing I worry about with positive things like being positive and empathy, and I think Chad alluded to this earlier, is it can come off as really irritating, especially when it's not authentic. So when you're positive and you're empathetic because you truly have joy inside of you and you're excited about something, it doesn't turn people off because it's real and people know real. We know when something's real. So I think we have to be really careful uh, about, you know, some of these more softer skills, because, you know, we tend to as a society just to go, okay, this is the new phase. Let me put a stamp on it, put it in front of my face. And now I'm off. And that's right. not real. And so I think that's, that's, you know, how I think about the empathy and all of those more positive um, uh, sort of behaviors. So what do you say to someone like me who is his entire life used those negative thoughts as armor? to protect him against what other people would say. But that's what because we all do. Oh. That's what we all do. And, and isn't that a sad world? Because yeah. we're all protecting ourselves from the very same thing. Mm -hmm. and, if, and if you know that, then you know that if I came to you, Chad, and let my armor down, chances are you might let yours down too. But someone has to be brave. Someone has to do it first. And that's why my workshops are so effective because I invite you in and allow you and give you permission to let your armor down and to know that we all carry it and it's okay 
to let it down. Because when you can let it down, that's when you can be yourself and learn and learn about others as well. You know, this just made me think of something, uh, a little flashback. When we, when I was taking the Walk in My Shoes workshop with you, there was this moment in time where you had everyone in the circle turn and look at the person next to them and literally just stare into each other's eyes for what seemed like an eternity to me. Uh-huh. And I remember I was like, oh my God, I don't think I, I, don't think I can keep doing this because it was like staring into someone's eyes really is a window into their soul, more than I ever realized until that moment. And it was this man, this older man who I didn't know, and we're staring into each other's eyes in this incredibly intimate moment. And it was, it was alarming. It was insightful. And but it was also really brilliant on your part. Talk about getting people to let their guard down. Like you don't have a choice. When you're staring someone in the eyes like that, like your armor just disappears. You don't have any armor. Yeah. And that's a concept called soul gazing. Mm. And, you know, (laughs) and Chad, thank you for, um, uh, you know, bringing that up because it really is an opportunity to open up new doors of intimacy um, with whomever. It allows you to communicate on a deeper level. And so what you really are doing is you're communicating to another person's soul through their eyes. And this is a very ancient tradition that allows people to open up and, um, you know, and just to feel more comfortable within themselves. Although it is, to your point, a very, very uncomfortable feeling and an unsettling feeling. But in that, you you actually get a chance to feel what it feels like for once to be really, truly vulnerable. And yeah. I would say, Jennifer, if you and Chad have not done soul gazing before, that- <laughs> <laughs> seriously, if you haven't done it together, do it. It requires two minutes of gazing in each other's eyes. And especially as a couple, as a romantic couple, it can work wonders. I would say we do it all the time. Okay, there you go. Well, that's yeah, what, I would say we stare into each other's eyes That's why we've been together for so long. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a little intimate with all of our listeners, but hey, welcome <laughs> to our podcast room. That's what I tend to do. I bring out the, <laughs> Let's know, just go there, right? I bring out what's not being seen right now. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah, we've always had that connection from the from the from the start, I'd say. And I mean, I have memories of staring into your eyes, Chad. It, it, you know, especially oh. when you asked me to marry you. Oh, there was more there was more <laughs> gazing than there was talking in that moment. Oh, that's but. so amazing. Okay, so you cannot delete this part from the interview. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I am the editor, though. Uh, Chad's the editor. Yeah. <laughs> Well, Dr. Gloria, I would like to know if you have any books that you're working on that we can look for in the future, coming days or Uh, Yeah. So you mentioned the female factor. And I also have um, a new book that I'm co-authoring that's coming out this month, um, unless there's some issue with the, um, you know, with the virus. Um, And it is, um, it's called The Professional Woman. And uh, what I write about is the human, what I call the humanist leader mindset, successful thinking strategies through the stages of your career. And so what I talk about are three stages in a woman's career, or it really is anyone's. And I, I kind of connect it to the things that I experienced and then how, how I handled it. And I give exercises to uh, help women in, those, uh, in that stage 
to understand where they are and, and how they should be responding and preparing awesome. um, in their career. Mm-hmm. Give us the title one more time. It's called The Professional Woman. And my chapter is The Humanist Leadership Mindset. Nice. Nice. And I have to say, I would love to read your memoir. I would love you have such an incredible story. And especially, you know, growing up in Brooklyn and everything you've overcome. And you're just such an authentic, warm, kind, loving individual. I think your memoir would be amazing. I don't know if you have plans to write one, but I'm just gonna yeah. you know, put out a little request. You do. You do. Yeah, I do. I mean, I, I it should have been done. But you know, <laughs> my challenge is I've, I've, you know, I have so many things that I do that I was trying to figure out, well, what's going to be the book that best, you know, describes what I'm trying to do. And, and then in the end, I keep coming back to, well, just talk about what you've been through and, you know, and start there. Mm-hmm. So I am mm-hmm. going to start there. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been wonderful. Such a good, a good reminder for us to tap into that creativity, to give ourselves permission to do that one simple thing, switch things up. Yeah. I'm shower with the lights off. There you go. And I'm going to turn and, them on. And you know what? Be your whole authentic self. That's the main thing is, you know, just try to find a way to be whole in, in terms of understanding who you are. Yeah. Um, you know, don't let that, that little small part of yourself hide, you know, just Absolutely. And find out about it. Well, thank you. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jennifer and Chad. Chad, you are a delight. <laughs> all the all the 20 words I've said. <laughs> yes, but I totally got them. <laughs> they were yes. very profound. So. <laughs> That's Chad. Exactly. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much also. It was a pleasure. Yeah, absolutely. My pleasure. Thank you. You can learn more about Dr. Gloria Chance at the Messiah Group. That's M-O-U-S-A-I-G-R-O-U-P dot com, where you can learn more about her workshops and her retreats, and also follow her on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Instagram. This has been another episode of The Premise. Visit us online at thepremisepod.com, follow us on Twitter at podpremise, and subscribe and rate wherever you get your podcasts. Until next week, thank you for listening. Goodbye. Are you an author with a story to tell, but you're just not sure how to get that story out? Guess what? You don't have to do it alone. Marnie Friedman is an incredible writing coach. She offers personalized support and expertise to guide you from a kernel of an idea to completion. Visit MarniFriedman.com to learn more. That's M-A-R-N-I-F-R-E-E-D-M-A-N.com. This episode is brought to you by Monkey See Media, a small boutique design firm offering award-winning websites, book cover designs, book trailers, and photography services. And full disclosure, we love what we do. Chad and I founded Monkey See Media in 2004, and we're still going strong. Visit monkeyseemedia.com. That's M-O-N-K-E-Y, the letter C, media.com to see how we can help you promote your book, build a powerful online presence. Mm-hmm. What else you got, Chad? Uh, let's see. We've got the San Diego Writer Festival. San Diego Writers Festival. There That's are many writers. <laughs> and they're a proud sponsor of our Premise podcast as well. 